now, back to Stand Up with Pete Dominic on Indy. Sirius XM 104. Very excited and uh, always intimidated to be talking to our next guest. He's one of the most brilliant people I've uh, heard, I've read, I've seen on just so many issues as well. You've seen him on everything from the Colbert Report, at TED Talks. Uh, he's an author, a speaker, and a professor of law and leadership at uh, Harvard Law School, where he's the director of the Edmund J. Saffer Center for Ethics. Joining us now is Professor Lawrence Lessig. Welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for being here today. Really appreciate it. Glad I could do it. There's a thousand things I want to ask you about. I, I mainly want to talk about your new campaign uh, to end uh, money and politics influence. And uh, I want you to also know that almost every time I, I talk about this issue, I, I mentioned striking at the root. And I've been so influenced by your book, Republic Lost. And and um, you've been a huge influence on me. But before we get to that, I, I've got to get Lawrence Lessig's take on this whole NSA leak situation. What do you what you think it all means and, and, and where you come down on on um, Edward Snowden as a hero, trader, whistleblower. I just, what, what you think uh, um, of, of all of this, Lawrence Lessig? Well, I think there's a lot of uh, questions, and it, it's extraordinarily troubling. Um, and the part that's most troubling to me uh, is that if Snowden's telling the truth, um, and, you know, to me he seems quite credible, but, um, but it's impossible at this stage to know exactly what, uh, what is what's fact and what's just his construction. But let's say we take him at his word. If Snowden is taking, telling the truth, then the idea that aid analysts sitting there in the NSA uh, or in private contractors working for the NSA um, have the freedom, the license, to just basically peruse how they wish this extraordinary cache of data that the government is collecting is quite terrifying and astonishing, given that there are so many ways in which the government could be engaging in the surveillance while still trying to protect in an effective way um, the privacy of, of American citizens. Um, what, do you, so, go ahead. What, what do you say to those who say, uh, nothing new here, this, we, we knew this was happening, this is not news? Well, I think what we knew was that the government was using technology to sift through a massive amount of data to try to find you know, the needle in the haystack. Um, in the way that Google sifts through massive amounts of, you know, your email or your web traffic to decide whether to give you an ad for Nike shoes or an ad for a vacation in Hawaii, right? I mean, so that sense in which right. they would be surveilling is is quite obvious to everybody. But uh, the part, again, that's, that's astonishing is that the, the checks or the technology that might, you know, regulate the ability for people then on the basis of their just being an analyst to dig down and to understand and to track and to, and to spy on people seems to be uncontrolled, or we don't know exactly how it's controlled. What Snowden says is it's uncontrolled. And if it is indeed uncontrolled, we're basically relying upon half a million private contractors to be good uh, rather than bad, then, you know, we've forgotten the lessons of 200 years of, um, of how you protect liberty. Uh, when you, when people a lot of people uh, as a result of this issue have brought up the famous Benjamin Franklin quote and security and liberal uh, liberty and and I mean and then some some then will will try to argue against that and say ah the founding fathers couldn't foresee the dangers uh, that that we now face with weapons of mass destruction dirty bombs etc. Uh, what what do you make of that that back and forth? Well, I mean I I, I don't discount Franklin's. Uh, warning. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that people um, are right to say, 
there are real threats that we face. But the question is, when we're addressing those, those threats, should we do it in a way that's respectful of our traditional values of privacy, or should we give up those traditional values and you know, become the kind of Orwellian uh, surveillance state that, that people now fear we might have become? And, and so uh, I don't see any reason why the government can't engage in the kind of um, legitimate surveillance, watching on the surface uh, traffic and identifying suspicious behavior, which gives them a reason to ask permission to go and investigate, um, while at the same time not creating a half a million people who have the capacity to be, you know, paging through, thumbing through our emails, um, however, however they might decide they want to do. So, so I don't, I don't accept the, um, the, the framing of this that says that we have to give up anything to continue to be able to uh, protect ourselves against a certain kind of threat. I just think we have to do it in a smarter, um, more respectful of our tradition way. I, I've read, all, I'm sure you've read so many, so much reaction uh, to this whole thing, Lawrence Lessig. Last question on it, though, which is, you know, I, I do feel like those who have, uh, those who have, you know, said that the American people, if there were another terrorist attack, the American people's reaction would be to, uh, you know, move so much more toward away from liberty and towards security, and they would let government do anything if there were another uh, terrorist attack. I mean, what, what do you think about, we can talk about the ideal and um, situation in terms of security and liberty and what the founders would have wanted, but I, I fear that that analysis is right, that uh, another terrorist attack uh, would, would move uh, the country so much further towards security and away from liberty. You can look at anything you want, put cameras everywhere, just protect me, make sure my plane doesn't go down. Uh, my, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's no attack at my mall or my mar- marathon. I, and, and a lot of people say that's what, that's how the American public would react. What do you say to that? I, I have no doubt that in the moment of terror, people would say anything or do anything. Uh, right. You know, it's just like, you know, if somebody were kidnapping my child, I would say anything or do anything. And I have no doubt about that. But it's kind of crazy to say that we ought to decide policy and build our, our social and privacy infrastructure on the basis of what we would do in the moment of our greatest terror. You know, mm. instead, we should be stepping back from the moment of greatest terror and asking, well, what, in fact, do we need to do? What do we need to do to avoid the kind of uh, attacks that kill hundreds of uh, people, um, you know, every decade or so? Um, what do we need to do to, to assure that we can identify uh, people in a way that gives the government a chance to, um, to, to protect against them? I mean, I think those are fair questions. All I'm saying is I'm astonished by the kind of ignorance of how the answers to those questions have been developed. There is a way to protect us while also embedding structure of privacy here that doesn't give the government this kind of roving authority to be wandering into every corner of people's private life. So that, that's what we should be aiming for. And what I want to hear the government demonstrate in response to what Snowden is saying is, in fact, that's what they're doing. And, and you know, it's, again, it's possible, it's possible that what Snowden is saying is not true. But if what Snowden is saying is true and the government doesn't have a response to that, that is deeply troubling because we are not in the, minute, in the, in the moment of a terrorist fear. You know, I understand on, on, on September 12th um, why rational thought wasn't possible. But, you know, more than a decade after September 11th, I don't see why rational thought here isn't possible. 
Talking to the brilliant Lawrence Lessig, and uh, I, he's on Twitter, by the way, at Lessig. You should read uh, what he's writing, and he's got a great blog as well, uh, Lessig.org. And uh, I want to talk about your TED Talk, too, but i got to get also your reaction because I do have you today, the day after the Supreme Court decision that came down yesterday on gene patenting, 9-0. Uh, to zero. Um, what did you, you know, you've written obviously a lot about uh, patents and, and copyright law and have a lot of really interesting takes on that that, that many people uh, really respect. What do you think about that decision yesterday? Was it the right decision? Um, how much more are we going to see about this issue? It was completely right. And, um, you know, in some sense, it demonstrated um, the, the, what's great about the court versus Congress because, <laughs> you know, the court was not being lobbied by the special interests who would benefit from yet another explosion in how far patent law tries to reach. Um, they were just calling, calling it as they saw it based on the principles of law that are, you know, 100 years old. I, and on the basis of those principles, the basic idea is you can't get a patent for discovering something about how Mother Nature made the world. Uh, and, and that's basically what was at stake here. These guys had, invent, had discovered the particular... Um, gene uh, sequence that would uh, create a certain risk of cancer. They tried to patent that. And what the Supreme Court said nine to zero is no, that's not what patent is about. Um, now, you know, if Congress had been deciding the same issue, um, <laughs> there would have been that principle. Yeah, of course, that's not what patent's about. But there would have been the temptation of millions of dollars of campaign contributions mm -hmm. from exactly those pharmaceutical companies who would love to be able to patent, you know, every single gene expression that turns out to be related to some particular kind of disease. That's like, you know, you get the drug and you get the disease. You get both of them in your own in one patent. And so anytime anybody wants to do research on it, they've got to be paying you just to be looking at the sequence of genes. Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's completely implausible that Congress could have made the same right judgment, but not because they're necessarily any dumber. Um, it's just because they're not, because they're completely um, and, uh, beholden to people who are, um, you know, pulling their strings, not on the basis of what's right and wrong, but on the basis of um, what will get them the campaign contributions they need. Well, as a segue uh, to, to to your TED Talk and to uh, ending the corruption in, in Congress, uh, and, your, and your book uh, that coincides with it all, uh, Lawrence Lessig, what about, uh, you know, you just talked about how much you agree with the Supreme Court decision on this uh, gene patenting case, nine to zero. But you 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 really disagree, obviously, as do a, a lot of uh, Americans with the Citizens United case. Why? Well, what Citizens United did was create the you know decide a decide a um, principle of First Amendment law that allows corporations to spend unlimited amounts of money influencing our politics. Now, again, um, I think the decision was wrong, but I don't think the decision was corrupt. It wasn't because Congress, uh, you know, that special interests had been lobbying the Supreme Court and, you know, promising them lucrative retirement packages or something like that. They just got it wrong. So there's no guarantee the court gets it right. But, but here the court got it wrong. And by getting it wrong um, in announcing this big principle, this broad principle, they, they induced a radical change in the way campaigns were funded over the last two election cycles. You know, there's an explosion of outside money which is uh, more likely to be special interest money in this last election um, relative to the election four years ago. Um, and, you know, we're quickly moving to a world where it's basically, you know, a thousand or two thousand of the richest, most powerful interests who, who are the funders of our campaigns, um, which means that members of Congress and the president are, um, are uh, beholden 
to these people they're dependent upon for the funding they need to run uh, their campaigns. And that, and that kind of dependency on the tiniest fraction of the 1% to fund your campaigns is exactly the dynamic that I think is the corruption that um, our, our government is now uh, suffering under. Um, so the Supreme Court just made it worse. But the important thing to remember is on January 20th, 2010, the day before uh, Citizens United was decided, um, our democracy was already broken. Uh, the Citizens United, you know, the Supreme Court may have shot the body, but the body was already cold. Um, and, and, and so it's not enough to imagine, you know, fixing the mistake of the Supreme Court and Citizens United. It's not like if we could just reverse that decision, we would have a healthy democracy. If we reverse that decision, we would have a democracy every bit as sick as this democracy is because we still would have a democracy where members of Congress are spending 30 to 70 percent of their time raising money from the tiniest fraction of the 1 percent. Um, and that's what creates the dependency and the corruption inside our system. Uh, there's so much uh, to, to, to talk about and to learn from our guest, Lawrence Lessig, and, and just put his name in Google and, uh, and, and watch his TED Talks, watch his interviews, and, of course, uh, read his book, Republic Lost. He's, he's, he's written a lot, uh, of course, about these issues. And now you've got a new idea, which I think, I think is possible. I really think this is possible. Uh, I don't think this is pie in the sky. And, and I'd love uh, to hear about your, your idea. There's th- this money bomb for 2016, this pack to end all packs. What's your big idea, Lawrence Lessig? Well, I think, you know, as, as I've spent about seven years now in this fight trying to figure out how we're going to put together the political force necessary to win um, and recognize that, um, you know, the closer we get to win, winning, the more um, vicious the other side is going to become because... <laughs> course, if we win, that basically cuts in half the value of lobbying on K Street. The lobbyists are pretty powerful people inside our system. So, you know, the, those two things go together to say we need a really powerful um, political movement, like unse- unseen in the history of American political movement, movements. So the basic idea was, well, what if we sat down with, you know, hired a bunch of experts who are campaign experts and said to them, how much would it cost over the next two election cycles? to win enough seats in the United States Congress to guarantee the kind of reform that would change the way um, uh, our government works. You know, what is that number? Is it a half a billion dollars? Is it a billion dollars? Just figure out what that campaign number is. You know, game it out. And once we come up with that number, then let's turn first to the, you know, 50 billionaires in the United States and say to each of them, I want you to commit contingently, like Kickstarter. I want you to, I want you to commit to giving, you know, whatever that number is over 50, if we can get 49 other people to make that pledge. So then we get 50 of the richest people to create, you know, a huge amount, uh, the biggest political pack we've ever seen, a pack, a super pack to end all super PACs. Um, Now, of course, we want to do that at every level. It's not just a, you know, it's not just the billionaires who would save us. You know, we would say, if you give, you know, if 100,000 people give $100, would you promise to give $100? Like at each level, we want to create this kind of commitment. But we want to contingently build this pack that's big enough to actually deliver the victory we need here. And the victory we need here is, is the victory to change enough seats in the United States Congress to make it so Congress comes in on, in January 2017, with their very first bill to be a bill to change the way elections are funded and thereby liberate them from these special interests. We're talking to Lawrence Lessig uh, on Twitter at Lessig, and 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 since you, 
uh, came up with this idea and started talking about this idea, Ted, and, 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 and since others have started writing about this and promoting this, uh, what have what have you heard back? What kind of feedback have you heard? Do you think you've you've got any? Uh, I mean, what would happen if you got one billionaire to go out and and, and do this and and start promoting it to others? Because I bet you they're they're all on a list serve somewhere, right, Lawrence? <laughs> um, what what's your, what's been the feedback so far? Oh, I think we've got more than one. Um, really? You know, That's yeah. Awesome. No, I mean we, we're going to be very careful not to. Um, you know, out anybody until there's something to out. But uh, I want so names. Yeah, <laughs> that's all. Um, that's fantastic. Go ahead. Yeah, their names are citizens. You know, their names are um, citizens who are going to. Uh, so not Richard Branson then. No, I haven't talked to Richard Branson. Well, you got to get him. Um, but yeah, so that, so that's the point. Let's uh, let's. We've gotten a lot of great feedback. A lot of people who have ideas about how and who to talk to, and and I've begun talking to them. You know, we've just commissions a study that's going to put together the number. Um, uh, and it's, that study is being run by, you know, basically presidential-level uh, campaign organization. So we'll see. You know, this, but this is, seems to me this is, the, um, you know, this is the shot. And if we don't make this shot, um, it's hard to imagine how we recover after another presidential election where, you know, the candidates are spending all of their time sucking up to the very, very richest in America as opposed to, focused on what most Americans care about. How does that, you know, how does that, can you give us, uh, maybe some people aren't convinced that that's the problem. Can you give us some kind of tangible example as to how uh, sucking up to the wealthiest Americans and political campaigns and, 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 and going to these high dollar uh, donor dinners, et cetera, affects the republic, affects democracy, uh, affects people listening right now's lives in a negative way? Yeah. Well, so here's one clear example. If, you know, if I said to you, in the beginning, in the first quarter of 2011, what was the number one issue that Congress spent its time dealing with? You know, um, you know, time on the floor of Congress and time in committees. I would say it's of, creating jobs, of course. Yeah, of course, right. <laughs> or, you know, we're in the middle of two wars. We had a huge debt crisis. We still right. had done nothing about climate change. There were lots of issues around health care. So what was the number one issue? The number one issue was the bank swipe fee controversy, which is, you know, when you use your debit card, how much money do the banks uh, get and how much do the retailers have to pay? That was the number one issue because when congressmen stand on the floor of Congress and waver to one side or another, they find millions of dollars in campaign contributions raining down on their head from these two very rich interests who are very keen to win on this one particular fight. Now, when you begin to think about that, you begin to think, wait a minute, they're allocating their agenda in Congress, not on the basis of what's important to most Americans, like you know, your issue, number one, jobs, or unemployment, or all sorts of other, you know, issues that really matter, they're allocating their agenda on the basis of what helps them raise the most money. Or, you know, here's another example. President Obama attended at least 222 fundraisers um, uh, before this last presidential election, uh, in the year up to this last presidential election. 222, right? Now, you know, that's a large number. They're only 365 days in a year. So, Think about that, and then here's the second number. The number of fundraisers Ronald Reagan attended in his second term, uh, running for his second term of president. The answer to that question, zero. 222 versus zero. Now, the big difference between those two wow. is that Ronald Reagan got public funding to run his elections. Every president between Nixon and, and Obama had taken public funding to run their elections. Reagan took it three times. He was the biggest beneficiary of 
national public funding for elections. But what it means is that he didn't have to spend all of his time thinking, what do I do to get these rich people excited to vote for me, uh, to give me money so that I have enough money to run my campaign and, and win in the election? It is impossible to believe that spending your time focused exclusively on how do I raise the money I need to get elected won't affect who you are, how you do what you do. And I think the data about what Congress does is pretty clear. Congress is being driven by the money to do the sort of things money wants and not the sort of things citizens want. Well, not only that, but the, the, and you, I think you just touched on it, Lawrence Lessig, but the amount of time that they spend obviously raising money. And I ask uh, congressmen, we have them on you know, every other week or so, we have different congressmen, Republican or Democrat, the, almost always the first question I ask, how much time do you spend uh, dial in for dollars. How much time do you actually spend making phone calls trying to get people to donate money? And all, almost all of them will at least say far too much time. And yeah. Matt Miller, who who publicized this campaign you're working on, also talked to former congressman like Tam, Tom Periello, who who talked exactly about how that all works. And and it's un pe most people have no idea and would have a hard time believing how much time they actually spend, how much of their time they're spending trying to get people to donate their campaigns and not. At looking at issues, much less being compromised by special interests. Right. Uh, you know, the Democratic leadership sent out to the incoming freshman congressman at the beginning of January a memo that outlined their model daily calendar. So here's what you're supposed to do every nine-hour day. Um, four of the hours on that model calendar were explicitly allocated to fundraising. Four of the nine hours, the largest chunk of their day, according to the official you know, Democratic view of what these people should be doing in Congress, was to be fundraising. And that doesn't even include you know, the cocktail parties at night or the dinners that they go to at night or all the time on the weekends where they're flying around the country trying to raise money. So they're completely open about the fact that this is the, their number one job, raising money. Um, but what's astonishing to me is that they talk about this as if this is like, you know, a meteor coming and hitting the earth and there's nothing we can do about it. When they could change this overnight, it doesn't take a constitutional amendment to change this. They could just um, change the way we fund elections with a simple statute passed by the United States Congress. But we just don't yet have leadership in the United States Congress willing to stand up to the special interests because they're the ones that lose and say, we're going to actually build a Congress people have a reason to trust. Um, and, and that's what we're trying to build a movement to demand that they do. Yesterday, there's a uh, um, result of a new Gallup poll released show that uh, public confidence in Congress is at 10%. It's lowest mark in the history of these Gallup surveys. And more than half of Americans, 52%, say they have little or no confidence in lawmakers. Um, and, and I think that this is a, a huge part of the problem is that, is that people understand uh, and, and, and no longer even care or are interested in, because they, they, they know that, you know, that that's what they're doing. They're spending so much time raising money and 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 what this money does. But uh, but I want to ask you, where where in the world uh, do they do it better? Lawrence Lessig, is there a system out there that we should be uh, copying or at least taking from? Well, um, we, there's no system we can just take completely because no country has a First Amendment like ours. Um, Right. So the sort of thing that other countries get to do, like, you know, ban television ads except for, you know, a particular chunk of time given to each candidate or restrict a campaign to just six weeks before the campaign um, or radically restrict the amount of money that people give. All of these things are unconstitutional under our First Amendment. Um, but the thing that every single serious 
competing democracy does that we could do overnight again is to find ways to um, you know fund elections um, so that uh, you're not funding it with the tiniest fraction of the richest people funding elections. So, um, you know, what some people call public funding, I, I like to think of as more like a bottom-up funding system, a small-dollar funding system. You know, in my view, we should be handing out vouchers or coupons to every single voter and letting them use that to fund the campaigns they want to fund. Um, if you did it from the bottom up, um, citizens would exercise control over that, but uh, you, would not, you would have candidates trying to appeal to the widest swath of Americans to raise their money as opposed to making the richest uh, uh, happy. So that so the model of using, you know, government money, but you know, allocated in in this particular way, is the sort of thing every single democracy does, especially the um, the least corrupt. Um, and and that's the, that's the insight that we have to find a way to to build into the American system. So again, I don't want top-down public funding. I don't want a government, you know, Washington official deciding you're running for Congress, you get a million dollars. You're running for Congress, you get a half a million dollars. That's crazy. But we can give citizens the resources they need to actually be the relevant funders so that congressmen are as eager to attract their money as they are eager to attract their mm. votes. Because what we know is money often matters more than votes. So give Americans the, money, the, vote, the money as well as the votes, and Americans will have the power once again. Lawrence Lessig, uh, you got to see his TED Talk, which I'll tweet out. You should buy the ebook based on the talk uh, as well and, and learn more about this. But what, do you, what would you like our audience to do? What, what, what can Because I can really advocate on this new program, certainly, uh, and, 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 and give my opinion as much as I, I can and, and you know, bring on the people that I think are the most brilliant on these issues, obviously you, uh, on this. What, could, what should people be doing, um, just ordinary people that might not have a lot of uh, time or money uh, outside of becoming aware, watching your TED Talk, buying your ebook, and becoming aware of this campaign? How else can people support your campaign, ordinary well, people? Well, you know, that's really the most important thing right now, spreading the word. Um, right. so you can join the, the group I run. It's called Root Strikers. It's on Thoreau's for every thousand hacking at the branches of evil. There's one striking at the root. We want to be the one striking at the root, and money is the root, so rootstrikers.org. But, you know, I'm within something like 60,000 views on that TED Talk um, to hitting the million mark if you look at both the YouTube and the TED platform views. So really just getting people to, to see this, to, to spread this message so that this becomes the common understanding of what the problem is that we're facing would be an enormous first step. Because if most Americans recognize this as the issue and talked about this as the issue, then finally the politicians begin to recognize, hey, it pays to try to talk about corruption, and so I'm going to talk about corruption and get something done. Uh, for my billionaire listeners, how can they get a hold of you? <laughs> they just send you an email and you can forward it. You, you got it. Lawrence Lessig, uh, I, I worship the, uh, the pedestal that you, that you have and, and think you're f fantastic, and I, uh, I really hope that uh, folks will, will be watching this TED Talk uh, it's made a huge impression on me, as is all of your work. Thanks so much for your time today. We really, really appreciate it.